At this time, we're going to bring Randy Madison up on stage, and you are in for a treat with Randy Madison, though, this morning. Uh, he preached at our first service and is preaching here at our second service as well. And uh, what a joy it was to hear from Randy uh, this morning. For me, the first time in about 20 years hearing from Randy. This was my pastor back when I went to Hastings College 20 years ago. And uh, Randy is a man who is very dear to my heart. He's a friend to me right now. But back 20 years ago, he was the man who helped me make the final step over the line of faith and commit my life to Christ. And so I feel forever indebted to Randy for uh, his role in my life, and we're so grateful though, that he's now here as our interim executive pastor. Randy's been here at Carnegie Free for a month, and in only a month's time, he's already shipped me into shape. You thought it would take much longer than that, but it took only a month, and it's been a, a great joy to have Randy here already, and I think you're in for a real treat to hear from him this morning. Would you please give Randy Madison a warm Carney E. Free welcome? Well, let's be clear about who's shipping who into shape, okay? Uh, Adrian is shipping me into shape. I'm learning a lot from him, and it's been a joy to, to be here and just to, to serve with him. And um, just an exciting time in my own life to, uh, to be here. And I want to thank you so very much for welcoming my wife and me so warmly uh, here to this church. Uh, we've just had a wonderful experience the past month that uh, we got to be in the uh, uh, service with Pablo here about a week ago, and uh, that was just a real treat to see what God is doing there. I know they're meeting simultaneous to us right now, and uh, so we can be praying for them as we're meeting in here. But uh, again, thank you so very much for making us feel welcome. Now, I want you to know why I was really invited here to be the interim pastor, executive pastor, and uh, be with Adrian. Remember, about a month ago, we discovered that Adrian liked donuts. How many of you were here then? You remember this picture? <laughs> well, I want you to see this one. I like donuts too. In fact, I'm a donut-holic. I'll confess it to you. Confession is good for the soul. One of the things that uh, I miss the most about our time in New York, we've been out there for the last couple of years, is uh, apple cider donuts. How many of you have ever been to Upper State New York and had apple cider donuts? Could I see your hands, please? They are literally to die for. They, that is good stuff. Okay, we've got a New Yorker right over here. Well, it's just uh, great to be back in Nebraska, but I do miss my donuts. You know, we all have a bucket list. Some of us want to make it into every Big Ten stadium. Others of us are wanting to go to every Major League Baseball park. I just had breakfast with a couple of, uh, a week or so ago, and uh, their ambition is, in life is to make it to every national state park in America. My bucket list is to eat donuts wherever I go. <laughs> now that that's out of the way, the real reason we're here this morning is for our Lord Jesus Christ, in Christ alone, and for God's glory alone. The last two themes of this Reformation study that we've been doing. We're going to use Paul's story this morning to look at these two themes. 
And if I could summarize what uh, our focus is today and put it in two uh, simple phrases, it's sola Christos, solo de la, Deo Gloria, for God, God's glory alone. And then in this little statement, which is coming up on the screen. And as we look at Paul's story, we're going to get into this this morning. And you may want to write this down and fill in the blanks there on your insert. God's saving grace alone, offered in Christ alone, should result in living for God's glory alone. Let me say it again. God's saving grace alone, offered in Christ alone, should... Now, that's an interesting word. Should, that's an interesting word, should result in God's glory alone. But the reality is, it doesn't always, does it? Even though we may know the Lord Jesus Christ is our personal Lord and Savior, we don't always go there. That isn't the end result in our lives. But we're going to see the impact this morning that it had on the Apostle Paul. Now, before we plunge in and look at Paul's personal story, Let's do a little bit of review and look back at where Adrian has had us over the last two weeks. I want to look at some of the big rocks and some of the themes that he's uh, taken us through. We've looked at the three major themes of, that came out of the Reformation, which were Scripture alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. And Adrian has done a great job of giving us kind of the historical situation of the church, what the church was like when Martin Luther came on the scene and God did this great work and led us back to these essential truths in the Word of God that we've been talking about now over the last couple of weeks. You remember that he nailed those 95 theses on that door and God began a work. Now for those of you who are into history, do we have any readers here this morning? Those who want to go just a little bit deeper and do a little bit more study. And you, you want to do more than just get online and listen to what Adrian has been teaching us. Here's a couple of books coming up on the screen right now that you might be interested in. Actually, Adrian and I are both reading this first book, The Man Who Rediscovered God and Changed the World. It's a book by Eric McToxas. He's a New York Times best-selling author. Uh, some of you may have read his book on Bonhoeffer a few years ago. Great book. This is a, a great book about Martin Luther's life in the Reformation. And then this second book by Herman uh, Selderhaus. He's a, from the Netherlands. A book that was given me, to me by my son-in-law just recently. Another excellent book. And in these books, you're going to find the major themes which Adrian, again, has been teaching us. The first big rock that I want to remind you of this morning that we've been learning is revelation leads to reformation. Can we say that together? Revelation leads to reformation. And you remember that in the first week that we were in this study. Years ago, I heard somebody make an interesting statement. He said, go to other books for information, but go to this book, the Bible, for transformation. There are a lot of good books out there that you can buy. You can go to Barnes & Noble. You can go down to the Solid Rock. And you can go to a lot of bookstores. You can buy a lot of books. Of the making of books, there is no end. But there is no book 
like this book. This book leads to change in your life. And I would encourage you to get into this book. How many of you can live on one meal a week? Anybody in here do well at one meal a week? I don't. We all need to eat a little bit every day. Now, Pastor Adrian preaches some great sermons. He's a wonderful communicator. We hear the truth of the Word of God from him every Sunday. But you can't live on one meal a week. And so I want to encourage you to get into the Scriptures. This is where life change is experienced. And get into a life group. There may be some of you here this morning that have not gotten into a life group yet. It's when we're in community, in relationship with other people, studying the Word of God together and discussing it, that we can go deeper and we can actually ask questions and, and we, we can get into, into issues and questions that you can't get into in just a sermon on Sunday morning. So revelation does lead to reformation. Hebrews chapter, 12, chapter 4 verse 12 says that the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it penetrates to our soul, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts and minds. Romans 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 2 says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How is our mind renewed? How are we changed? By getting into the truth of the Word of God. Revelation leads to reformation. Now, the second big rock that I want to remind you of is a statement that Adrian made last week. Living for approval is drudgery. You remember that statement? But living from approval is delight. And that's a statement about God's grace operative in our lives. So often we try to earn God's favor. And we think by being good enough, or if I just do this, or I just do that, or if I can just achieve this, then I'll earn favor with God, and I've got a place in eternity. But that's not the truth. That's really a lie. That's, that's the, the system of other world religions. Uh, they're works-based righteousness systems. But that's not Christianity. And that's what Martin Luther discovered. You remember Martin Luther spent a lot of time confessing. He spent a lot of time trying to earn God's favor. He, he thought if he, he could just do this or he, if he could just be contrite enough that somehow he would earn a place in heaven and in a relationship with God. When he was 26 years of age, you know what Martin Luther did? Do we have any people in here that are 26 years old or younger? Could I just see your hands this morning? Raise them high. Come on, you've got to be proud that you're 26 or under. When Martin Luther was 26 years of age, he made a trip to Rome. And when he was in Rome, he discovered this stairway. It was called the Holy Stairs that somebody had supposedly brought back from the Promised Land to, to Rome and there was a belief going on in Martin Luther's day that if you could just go up on these stairs on your knees, one at a time, and as you were on each stair, recite the Lord's Prayer, then you could get an, a person that had died in your family 
maybe out of purgatory and into heaven. And so he did that. And he recited the Lord's Prayer on each step. He got to the top of the stairs and he had this, this horrible thought come to his mind. He said, what if, isn't, what if it isn't true? What if all of this is alive? What, what if it's not true? Eric McToxas, in his book that I was just telling you about, makes this statement. He said, Luther was hunting for truth about who we are and who God is and what he expects of us and how we can reconcile the infinite breach between heaven and earth, between God and man, peace and agony. But Luther never found it at this point in his life. He was miserable. He, he was living a life of drudgery, doubt, and despair. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and that's where you are. You're in church. You may not want to admit it to anybody else, but if somebody could look into your heart and really see what's going on inside of you, they would know that you're living a life that's filled with doubt and questions and maybe some despair. And that's where we end up when we try to earn approval with God. Which leads us now to the last third big rock that I want to remind you of that you heard last week if you were here. And this is the biggest rock of all. Christ plus nothing equals everything. What we need is Jesus Christ, a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so you remember this slide that's coming up, this, this picture of Adrian when he walked you through grace plus works, faith plus merit, and Christ plus me equals what? Well, it really ends up equaling nothing. People think that, that somehow that's going to make them right with God. But it leads you nowhere. It's really grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that leads us to a place of justification. And you remember what justification is. Just as if I'd never sinned before. And so in Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, he looks at you through his righteousness, and it's just like you've never sinned before. That's the message of the Reformation. Let me illustrate it in this way. How many of us in here today have the ability to swim from the, the coast of California to Hawaii with no help. Is there anybody in here that can make that swim? Absolutely not. Just think, assume for a minute this mo moment this morning that we're not here in Kearney, Nebraska, but we're out on the coast of California, and I'm the lifeguard. I step into the water, and I blow my whistle, and at the sound of my whistle... Every one of us in here starts swimming for Hawaii. None of us would make it. It's like trying to leap to the other side of the Grand Canyon with no assistance. You can't do it. And in the same way, we cannot make ourselves right with God. There's no way that we can make ourselves good enough or perfect enough to have a relationship with Him. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that leads us to Paul's personal story now this morning as we end this study. You remember Paul's story? He was a lot like Martin Luther. He came from the strictest of all 
sects of Judaism called the Pharisees, uh, aside from maybe the Essenes, if there was ever a group that tried to be right with God by what they did, it was the Pharisees, and that was the group that trained Paul in his religious training. And so he was zealous for good works. He wanted a relationship with God, and maybe that's why he, he persecuted the church. And then one day as he was traveling the road to Damascus, he met Jesus Christ on that road. He came face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever you come face to face with Jesus Christ and you realize who Jesus is, you also realize who you are. Because you see Jesus Christ and all of his greatness and all of his glory, but all of a sudden we realize our imperfection. We realize all our mess-ups, all of the things we've done wrong, and we realize all of a sudden it's like swimming to Hawaii. I can't make it. I'm never going to get there. I can't do that. And we realize that we need Christ. We need his death on the cross for our sin and our imperfection if we're ever going to spend eternity with God. And so Paul had this encounter. And now here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, at the end of his life, he's looking back. And if you have your Bible, open it to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And just follow along with me this morning as we looked at four parts to Paul's story. Paul is near the end of his life as he writes these words, and he's writing to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy. How many of you have ever gotten a letter from a loved one when they were at the end of their life, or an email, and you cherished that letter, you saved it because they shared something with you very significant or very important? Have you ever gotten a letter like that? Anybody? Am I the only one in here? When you get a letter like that, you hang on to the words. You remember what they wrote. And Paul has something very important now to tell us today as he looks back on his life and he's writing to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, in about 65 AD, three years before his death. And the first thing I want you to know is he, he talks about this good news that we're talking about today, that we don't have to earn it, but it's a gift of God's grace Notice how he describes it here in verse 11, here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He calls it the gospel or the good news of the glory of the blessed God. Or in the NIV version, if you've got the NIV with you this morning, it's translated in this way. He calls it the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And the, this good news is good news, and it's glorious because it's not only good news, but it, it, it shows us what God is like. And so Paul now is just overcome with great gratitude. And notice what he says here in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 1. He says, I continually thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me into his service. He's just overwhelmed with, with gratitude that Jesus Christ was willing to forgive him, and not only forgive him, 
but actually allow him to proclaim this message that we're talking about this morning. And so he breaks out in song. That's how he begins this passage. Now look at verse 17. Look down the page at verse 17 here in 1 Timothy 1. And notice how Paul ends. He begins with great thanksgiving, and then he ends with this doxology. He says, Now to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so he ends on this, this note of praise. And if you're in a life group, you're going to have an opportunity this week. This is another reason you need to get into a life group, okay? And study the Word with some other people. You're going to have an opportunity this week to look at some other doxologies in the New Testament because there's a lot of places like this where people just break out and praise to the Lord. Reminds me of a situation when I was a student at Wheaton College. They had mandatory chapel. And so we would meet in a room like this. It was a little bit bigger maybe than this room. And uh, several thousand students would, or several hundred or thousand, I don't remember how many would be there. And I remember that we sang a song back in those days that went something like this. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. That's this verse of Scripture. That's what the Apostle Paul's singing. And he couldn't thank God enough for what the Lord had done in his life. He was overcome with gratitude. And you know, our lives should result in God's glory. Our lives should just be a continual song, like this song that I just sang. It should, our, our, our lives should be a poem. That's the word back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where, where after he, Paul says we've been saved by grace through faith, he says our lives are his workmanship. That's the word from which we get our English word for poem. Our lives should be a, one poem, a sonnet, a song to God's glory if you've really experienced his, his salvation by grace through faith. Now notice the second thing that Paul does in this passage of Scripture. He remembers God's incredible mercy. Look at verses 13 and 16. In the NIV, he says, I was shown mercy in verse 13. And then look at verse 16. He says it again. But I received mercy even though I was the worst of all sinners. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was violent. I didn't deserve it. But God showed me mercy. And then he makes this interesting statement. He says, because I acted ignorantly or in unbelief. Does that mean that God just forgave him because he was ignorant when he did it? I don't think that's really what it means. You know, we've all committed sins of, and you've heard this word before, sins of omission and sins of what? Commission. A sin of omission is what? We get up in the morning, we didn't plan to do that. 
There are days where I'm rude to my wife. I don't treat her in the way that I should. And at the end of the day, I have to come back to her and ask her forgiveness for what I did. I didn't get up planning to do that, but I had a bad moment. Or I was under pressure and I did something I shouldn't have done. And I've done far worse than that. Well, Paul was shown mercy, he said. And he's overcome by the incredible mercy of God. And he committed sins of omission and commission. And there are those sins where we, we planned to do it, we intended to do it, and we did it. But God still forgives us for that too in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're willing to come to him humbly and ask his forgiveness and tell him that we need the cross of Christ for our sin. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And Paul never lost sight of God's incredible mercy in his life despite all of his sin. Mercy is not getting what we, de we, we actually deserve. When we were living in New York over the past two years, we had to make the trip to the airport early in the morning to catch flights back here to the Midwest. And one of our first trips to the airport, I'm, I'm running late. I told my wife, I know where to go. I, I know how to get there. And I made two wrong turns. And so I start speeding. And I'm going down this road, a two-lane road. It's about a 35-mile-per-hour speed, uh, speed zone. And I'm going about 60. Now, guess what happens when you're going 60 into 35? What do you get? And sure enough, it's, it's like 4.30 or 5 in the morning, and nobody's supposed to be there. And there's one person out there, and it's the police officer. So he pulls me over. And I pled for mercy. And guess what I got? I got mercy. For the second time in my life. I deserved a ticket, but I got mercy. And that's the way it is in our relationship with the Lord. We deserve judgment, but we get mercy. God's incredible mercy. Paul was shown mercy. John Newton, the author of the, the, the great hymn, Amazing Grace, penned these words. He said, Although my memory is fading at 82 years of age, he wrote this. I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, number one, but I have a great Savior who covers that sin. And so then he goes on in, 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 as he's writing to his son Timothy, and he, he, he mentions a third thing, God's abundant grace. Notice his overwhelming gratitude he remembers God, God's incredible mercy. And then look at verse 14. He talks about God's abundant grace. He says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed. This is an interesting Greek word. You know what it means? It means it superabounded. It overflowed its riverbanks toward me. God's grace is not only sufficient, but it's super abundant. It, it covers all of our sin, and it meets our every need. And so now he's remembering God's, his, his great abundant grace. Grace is receiving what we do not deserve. I don't deserve grace. I deserve death. I deserve punishment. 
Ecclesiastes 7.20 says there's not a just or righteous person that's ever lived that always does good and never sins. We've all come up short of the glory of God. What we deserve is punishment or judgment. But instead we get grace because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us when he came and died on that cross. And that's what grace is. You know what grace is? Grace is God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. I can't swim to Hawaii. I can't jump across the Grand Canyon. And I can't save myself. And the message of the Bible is none of us can save ourselves. Grace is God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Grace is doing for me what I can't do for myself. And incidentally, the Christian life is a life of grace from the beginning to the end. We need the grace of God to even live the Christian life. Because guess what? You can't make yourself more like Jesus Christ. You can't be more patient. You can't be more loving. I can't be more loving. I need God's help. I need God's grace. The story of the Christian life is the grace of God, God doing for me what I could not and cannot do for myself. And so he, he worships God for his abundant grace in his life. John Newton also said at one point, I'm not what I ought to be. And maybe you feel that way this morning. You're here and you don't feel like you're what you want to be or you ought to be. I'm not what I might be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But I'm not what I once was. A child of sin. I think I can truly say with the apostle that by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's by the grace of God that we get into heaven and we live the Christian life. Amy Carmichael said in a wonderful, beautiful way, thank God that he doesn't measure out grace in teaspoonfuls. I need a lot more than a teaspoonful. I need a shovelful or a wheelbarrow full of grace. We need God's grace. And then he closes this morning with this final thought. He remembers Christ's unlimited patience. Notice what Paul says here in verses 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the first or the foremost. And if you've known Christ for a while, you read this verse of Scripture and what do you think? No, Paul, you got it wrong. I'm the worst. We've all been there, haven't we? We're in need of Christ's unlimited patience. And so he says, I was the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me is the foremost, the worst, the first, the chief of all sinners. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The unlimited patience of Christ. Now notice the phrase, this is a trustworthy saying. Do you see that in verse 15? Or this is a saying deserving of our trust, depending on your translation. 
This is a phrase which is repeated over and over again in the pastoral epistles in 1 and 2 Timothy. And you know what it means? It means this is a statement that you can count on. It's like having a million dollars in the bank. It covers your sin. You can count on it. This is a trustworthy saying that Christ is a person of unlimited patience and you can count on his patience. So what is it you can count on as we wrap this up and as we summarize this morning and prepare our hearts for communion? You can count on this. You can count on the fact that God in his mercy will forgive you. You can count on this. Look at verse 15 again. This is a trustworthy saying. You can count on this. It's like money in the bank, except it's better than money in the bank. You can count on God's unending, abundant grace for you. And you can count on, God, on Christ's unlimited patience for you. That means that Christ will hang in with you and he will be there for you. No matter what you're going through in your life right now, God, Jesus Christ wants to be there for you and he will travel along with you throughout life. He's a person of unlimited patience. And how do we know this is true? Look at the last verse. Because God proved it in Paul. Paul becomes the example. God proved it in Paul. And so we can bank on it. Reminds me of a story of an elderly lady who had memorized most of the Bible. And we'll close with this. She got to the end of her life and she started to develop dementia. And one of the verses in the Bible that she had memorized was uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. And so she knew by heart, I know whom I've believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. But as she began to lose her thoughts, all she could remember was one little phrase in that verse which went, that's which I have committed unto him. And then when she got to her last day, people were bending over her bed trying to help her, wanting, wanting to see if she needed something. And all they could hear was her saying one word. She'd forgotten all of the verses. She'd forgotten this verse. She'd forgotten the phrase. All she could remember was one word. And she, all they could hear her saying was, Him, 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 H-I-M, Him. She'd forgotten all of the Bible, everything that she'd memorized. And all she could remember was one word. But with that one word, she had the message of the entire Bible, which is in Christ alone. Him, Him, Him. It's Him that we need. I was here in this room just a, a couple of weeks ago for the funeral of Lois Jameson. Many of you knew her well. I didn't have the privilege of knowing her. I see some smiles. You remember her. Her life was all about him. And because of him, her life was like a song, like a doxology. She lived it to the glory of God. All for him.